the last time that Republicans had a contested presidential primary was the year 2016. And though it seems sort of impossible to imagine now, the party was kind of divided about Trump's victory all the way to the convention floor. And you saw that no more clearly than when Senator Ted Cruz went to the podium in a primetime speaking slot, I might add, and refused to mention Trump's name during his convention speech. And boy, oh boy, did people notice. If you love our country and love your children as much as I know that you do, stand and speak and vote your conscience, vote for candidates up and down the ticket who you trust to defend our freedom. God bless each and every one of you, and God bless the United States of America. Prior to that moment, before all those just deafening boos, Ted Cruz and Donald Trump had been going at each other for months. Relations between these two men were not good. Trump regularly went after Ted Cruz's family during the primary. He weirdly and baselessly accused Cruz's father of playing a role in the Kennedy assassination. He insulted Cruz's wife, Heidi Cruz, for her appearance. And Senator Ted Cruz was quite obviously furious over it. Donald doesn't like strong women. Strong women scare Donald. I don't get angry often. But you mess with my wife, you mess with my kids, that'll do it every time. Donald, you're a sniveling coward and leave Heidi the hell alone. But Ted Cruz was not an outlier that year. Other candidates running against Trump were also able to muster some amount of courage to speak out about him, to maybe even stand up to him or at least his candidacy. Senator Marco Rubio was running against Trump in 2016. And this is what Marco Rubio had to say. Donald Trump is a con artist. Guys, we have a con artist as the front runner in the Republican Party. A con artist is about to take, take over the Republican Party and the conservative movement. We cannot allow the conservative movement to be taken over by a con artist. You all have friends that are thinking about voting for Donald Trump. Friends, do not let friends vote for con artists. So that was the tenor of things the last time Republicans had a contested primary. And what a difference eight years makes. Senator Marco Rubio, who spent a fair part of 2016 calling Donald Trump a con artist, has this week endorsed Donald Trump for president, despite the fact that Trump has now actually legally been proven to be a con artist by a federal judge. In September, Judge Arthur Angoron ruled that Trump was guilty of defrauding banks and defrauding insurance companies, that he has been gaming the system. And that judge is right now, as we speak, deliberating how much money, likely millions and millions of dollars, Donald Trump must pay for his swindling. But Marco Rubio hasn't said anything about that con this time around. Meanwhile, Ted Cruz, who made some real waves back in 2016, calling out Trump's fear of strong women and urging Republicans to vote their conscience. Last night, Ted Cruz also endorsed Donald Trump for president, and he did so in the very same week that Mr. Trump is sitting in a New York courtroom, having been found civilly liable for def defamation of a woman strong enough to take Donald Trump to court, a woman that the civil court says Donald Trump sexually abused. But Senator Cruz had nothing to say about strong women or consciences 
this week. The moral judgments Republicans once made about Donald Trump apparently do not matter anymore. The fact that Donald Trump said 12 days ago, 12 days ago, Ted Cruz, he shouldn't even exist. I could have destroyed him. I kind of did destroy him in 2016, if you think about it. But then I let him live. Even that did not matter to Ted Cruz. What we are seeing right now is the near complete capitulation of the Republican Party to Donald Trump. In addition to those senators I just mentioned, Trump has locked up 23 other endorsements from Senate Republicans, probably the group of Republicans most at least inclined to be resistant to his lawlessness. Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, for their part, have a collective zero Senate endorsements between them. Over in the House, Trump has endorsements from more than 100 members. Ron DeSantis, who served in the House, has five. Nikki Haley has one. It's not just elected Republicans, though. It is the moneyed Republicans who help get them elected. All of them are also falling in line. According to the website Puck News, the Trump campaign has put out the word to major GOP donors that if they're not on the Trump train by next month, it will be noted on their permanent record and that forgiveness will get harder thereafter. The threats have apparently been effective. Robert Bigelow, the hotelier and aerospace entrepreneur who previously gave $20 million to DeSantis' super PAC, has recently signaled to Trump allies that he is now supporting Donald Trump for president. Ed McMullen, a Trump fundraiser who served in Trump's administration, described a tidal wave, a tidal wave of Republican donors rushing to make amends and secure their place among Trump's allies. I've never had the experience of people reaching out in such large numbers to do a mea culpa and say, how can I support the president? This is what is happening right now inside the Republican Party. And the reality is that at this juncture, the only person meaningfully standing between Donald Trump and the Republican nomination is Nikki Haley. Now, Donald Trump has already begun ramping up his attacks on Haley, dusting off the racist birther playbook that he used on President Obama and similarly referring to Nikki Haley by her first name, Nimarada, as if to prove that I guess she somehow doesn't belong here. And in response, well, Governor Haley cannot even muster the kind of responses that Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz managed against Donald Trump just eight years ago. How do you feel about your party's front runner being held liable for sexual abuse? I mean, first of all, I haven't paid attention to his his cases and I'm not a lawyer. All I know is that he's innocent until proven guilty. And when he's proven guilty and he's sitting in a courtroom, that's exactly what I'm talking about. You've got investigations on Trump and Biden. A lot of people, forgive me, but a lot of people uh, in the Republican Party blow it all off and say that it's all a witch hunt and which is because I think some of the some of the cases have been political this one I haven't looked at but look if he's found guilty then he'll he needs to pay the price he needs to do what he's supposed to joining me now is Mark Leibovich staff writer at the Atlantic and author of thank you for your servitude Donald Trump's Washington and the price of submission also with me Jamel Bowie opinion columnist at the New York Times thank you gentlemen for joining me um Mark, let me just start with you first. Does the speed of the capitulation, the speed with which the dominoes are falling, 
Does it in any way surprise you, given the sort of unknown X factors that remain in terms of Donald Trump's ability to stay out of a jail cell? Yeah, I mean, the only known here is that they always capitulate. I mean, the speed, I mean, it is kind of stunning to hear Nikki Haley just, I mean, I think capitulation implies that she actually was putting up a fight to begin with against Donald Trump. I mean, it's been such a passive resistance to him to begin with. And then to hear that, I mean, you could diagram that answer. I mean, as far as um, I haven't been paying attention. I mean, Dana Bash just like read her the headline. I mean, he was found liable of sexual assault. Um, And then, you know, I haven't been, it's basically, I, I don't, I didn't see the tweet. That's sort of a later day version of I didn't see the tweet. And look, I mean, Nikki Haley is not going to put up a serious fight if based on what we saw just on that clip. And and it does look like we're sort of in the middle of white flag week, which is in so much as there is any kind of campaign or resistance. And I still think Nikki Haley is somewhat well positioned in New Hampshire. Um, it, it's not going to look anything like we saw in 2016 or, or really in any other contested campaign. And you're right. I mean, I, I think I'd forgotten about, you know, the Ted Cruz speech um, to see it again. It was like, wow, that's what fight looks like. And of course, you know, they all capitulated and now they've just sort of done it all again eight years later. It's frankly really depressing to watch. And we've seen it a million different ways. I, I guess, you know, to sort of see it play out in what could be really the last weeks of potential opposition to Donald Trump within the Republican Party um, really puts a new bow on it. And I guess this is sort of like the future that the Republicans continue to choose for themselves. Well, and it seems clear to Mel that the incentive structure is two, is is double prong is, is is forked, if you will. On one hand, there's the the incentive of, I guess, personal material gain, which explains the donors that are flocking to the president in their allotted time frame before they get their reputations harm on their personal Trump scorecard, <laughs> and and or political annihilation, right? I mean, at least that's the suggestion from Trump land. I think the, one of the most stark examples of that is. The the um, the House Freedom Caucus chair, Bob Good, endorsed Ron DeSantis. He now faces a primary challenger and the Trump the team is out, like explicitly threatening him. I think um, uh, Chris LaCivita, who's the senior Trump advisor, said Bob Good won't be electable when we get done with him. It's everything short of the horse head in the bed, Jamel. Um, but it tells you how the modern day Republican Party is run. Right. You know, my, my view of this has been that this has basically basically been baked into the cake ever since February 2021, that when the Republican majority, well, not majority, but Republicans in the Senate chose not to remove Trump or at least prevent him from running for office again, voting for impeachment when they did not get the requisite votes that kind of guaranteed what we're seeing now, that that was the one opportunity to actually knock him out of the process. But since that didn't happen, it was sort of an inevitability that he was going to regain the stature he had before. Now, what I find so strange about it is that Trump does have this real power within the Republican Party. He, you know, Bob Good is actually my congressman. Uh, so he, <laughs> I, I think Trump could, <laughs> uh, I think Trump could. Uh, and his allies could make life very difficult for for Bob Good in terms of winning a Republican primary. But one of the one of the features of Trump's uh, reign in the Republican Party is that he's he's actually an electoral drag in in competitive general elections. That candidates who tie themselves very closely to Trump in a competitive race 
don't do very well. And so what's strange is that you have Republican politicians uh, who presumably care about winning elections, unwilling to disentangle themselves from a guy who, other than 2016, right, other than the surprise win in 2016, has not been particularly successful for the Republican Party. Yeah, um, Mark, Jamel raises a really fair point. And actually, we were thinking about this as we were talking about this segment. There, the, Donald Trump has some big L's on the board. Carrie Lake, oh. Blake Masters, Doug Mastriano, Mehmet Oz, Herschel Walker. I mean, in terms of actually getting people into office, he isn't that successful, which which I mean, I think begs the second question, which is why is it just the, the personal threats that, that are so resonant with elected Republicans, the idea that their house is going to be, you know, that they're going to be the victim of a swatting attack, that just the, the headache of going up against Trump, if not the actual, you know, uh, primary challenge or or losing of the seat. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't underestimate, you know, the sort of the factor of like worrying about their personal safety as, as a factor here. But I do think. All the instances you just mentioned, these are statewide Senate races in swingy states. I mean, someone like Bob Goods, you know, Mike Johnson, whoever, these, they're not going to, they're not <clears throat> living in swing districts. They are not going to lose close, you know, these are, these are not Biden districts. And that's true pretty much across the board. Their biggest worry is primary, being primaried. And again, I mean, that's sort of the explicit threat that they're making against Bob Good here that you referred to with Chris Lasavita. So yeah, no, I mean, it's terrifying. I mean, this they have this kind of power. It's a, it's a real kind of shakedown situation. We've seen it over and over again. And I think that's going to be the reality in the party. And I think you're going to have to find candidates who occasionally are not, you know, so terrified of losing and getting on the wrong side of Donald Trump and the base of the party. I am. Do you know, Jamel, when you talk about it was sort of a foregone conclusion that the GOP would be in this position after January 2021. The only thing that ha has really truly developed that might have changed that is, are, is is Trump's potential criminal exposure. I mean, there there is an unknown future for this individual as it concerns the justice system, which is, if anything, maybe a, a, a cause for Republicans to be just a little bit hesitant about putting all their chips on a man who could be, you know, in the process of a federal appeals process for criminal convictions for, I mean, there are 91 felony counts against him, Jamel. Does that lack of hesitancy surprise you at all? It doesn't, it doesn't surprise me, again, because I think that the people vying for national leadership of the Republican Party do seem to just be unwilling to make the decisive break, right? Like, there's, there's room, there's space theoretically, to make this case against Trump on this basis, right? That he is criminally liable, that he may very well, you know, be convicted of serious crimes between now and November. And it's also been an electoral loser. We should just get rid of him and choose someone else. But you'll note that neither Nikki Haley nor Ron DeSantis seem at all capable of making that kind of argument. And not only can they not make a kind of pragmatic argument against Trump, I mean, the same just tried running to his political right, which is very odd to me. But if you, if you just listen to their rhetoric and what they're saying at these debates and everything, they don't even really seem to have a sense of the temperature of the Republican base in terms of what people want to hear beyond kind of like red meat, right? So uh, one thing that struck me with the previous debates, was it be Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis, basically reverting to 2012-era deficit fear-mongering. And it's like, 
what? <laughs> like, like this, this Donald Trump notably was like, I'm not, I'm not, I don't care about that stuff. Like I, that doesn't, that doesn't matter to me. And I feel like that's a cute follow. You follow that cue. You try to make this pragmatic case and you, you try to triangulate that way. But they, they can't even seem to do that. It, it, it's very, I mean, I'll be perfectly honest with you. It's very odd to me. Very strange to watch. It, that is an un, the understatement of the season. Mark Leibovich, Jamal <laughs> Bowie, thank you both guys for your time tonight. Thanks, Alex. We have a lot more to get to tonight. Like Donald Trump doing his best to disrupt court proceedings today, which is a, a strategy, maybe. And Senator Elizabeth Warren on an issue that Democrats would like to be front of mind this November. She joins me live. Coming up next. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. A few days before the Iowa caucuses, Donald Trump was asked about his position on abortion. For 54 years, they were trying to get Roe v. Wade terminated, and I did it, and I'm proud to have done it. Now, I happen to be, uh, for the exceptions, uh, like Ronald Reagan, with the life of the mother, uh, rape, incest. You have to win elections. Apparently, Trump is both a supporter of the Supreme Court's decision to end Roe v. Wade, but also a critic of abortion restrictions that could cost Republicans election wins. If you look at it, Ron DeSantis, his poll numbers have gone down to a level that he's going to be out of the race very soon. It happened to coincide with that because a lot of people say a lot of, you know, if you talk five or six weeks, a lot of women don't know if they're pregnant in five or six weeks. Trump's kind of incoherent messaging on abortion actually seems possibly to be working in his favor. On Monday in Iowa, he was able to get 55 percent of the vote of those who favor a national abortion ban and 44 percent of the vote of those who oppose it. Now, of course, this strategy has its limits. At some point, Donald Trump will likely face a real question about where exactly he stands on the issue and whether he condones what is happening to women all over this country. To that end, Democrats in the Senate today held a briefing on the state of abortion rights, where victims described the painful consequences of Republican restrictions on abortion. A routine ultrasound showed devastating news. The brain and skull had not formed. And I remember looking at the ultrasound screen in complete disbelief 
I can't believe I need another abortion, I thought. We have to flee the state. Because of Texas's new laws, we were afraid to use a credit card or tell people where we were going. It was absolutely humiliating, and I felt physically and emotionally broken. Joining me now is Senator Elizabeth Warren, the Democrat who is part of the Senate abortion briefing today. Senator Warren, it's great to see you. Thanks for making the time. I find these stories from these women absolutely wrenching. And I wonder how you think they may be changing what we think of as a traditionally partisan landscape when it comes to reproductive freedom. You know, I think what has happened in the past 18 months since an extremist Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade has been like getting smacked in the face day after day after day after day after day. Back when Roe was in place, sure, there'd been a lot of efforts to chip away at it, but people had thought about abortion rights as something that we were guaranteed. They'd been there for nearly half a century. The Supreme Court had spoken. That was what America wanted, and that's what America had. And then Donald Trump manages to get an extremist Supreme Court in place. They overturn Roe, and we watch day after day as another aspect unfolds. A 10-year-old who needs an abortion and can't get it in her state. A, A mother who desperately wants a baby, but understands that this, this, this fetus in her is badly deformed and she needs an abortion. Another mother whose life is at risk and doctors stand beside her saying, is she close enough to death for us to give her an abortion under local laws? So, it's, it's watching the reality unfold, piece at a time, piece at a time, piece at a time. And it's watching it unfold with a neighbor, with a sister, with a cousin, with a friend, so that it's spread across America. And we have truly come to see what it means to live in Donald Trump's America, where politicians decide who gets access to abortion rather than doctors and patients. You know, I think it's it's remarkable that you call it Donald Trump's, Donald Trump's America, because it is, in fact, of course, the Supreme Court that he shaped, that turned mm-hmm. uh, overturned Roe v. Wade. But Donald Trump has somehow managed to kind of skate on both sides of the issue here by being very unclear as to be indecipherable, his position on abortion. No. Mike can, my, I, my question for no. you is, Is he, I mean, but is is anybody, is he going to get asked the tough question here? I mean, it's unclear if he's going to have, if they're going to be debates in the, in the general election season. I mean, no, and thus far, go ahead. Yeah. We don't need to ask him this question. I think that is absolutely the wrong way to frame this. He proudly put this Supreme Court in place. He proudly screened them for their position on abortion. And he is responsible for the state of abortion in this country right now. He is responsible for the fact that 20 states make it virtually impossible for someone who needs an abortion to get access. He is responsible 
for the fact that now these courts may take away mifepristone, for example, and undermine access to abortion in California and Massachusetts and Washington State and Oregon and all of the places that have protected abortion. Donald Trump is responsible. I don't need a question to him. I don't need a debate from him. I don't need a clear statement from him. The facts are the facts. He is responsible, and abortion will be on the ballot in 2024. And I hear you on that. I am just going off the fact that 44% of caucus goers who do not support a federal election, federal abortion ban, supported Donald Trump. He won. He won on that issue. So clearly, I mean, the facts are the facts, but somehow they're not being communicated to certain sections of the American electorate. But but let's remember, those caucus goers are Republican caucus goers who showed up in Iowa in the middle of freezing weather to say, no matter what, I'm going to get there. And a big hunk of them said, I'm going to support Donald Trump no matter what. I do not think This means he can pull the wool over the eyes of the rest of America, of the people who are out on the streets marching over abortion, over the people who showed up in Kansas and the people who showed up in Michigan, the people who said, you give us a chance to vote on abortion and we will make certain that access to abortion is protected. So I'm not worried. Donald Trump is responsible. And I believe, regardless of what hardcore Republicans are going to do. I believe the rest of America is going to hold him responsible. And it's going to be one of many reasons that Donald Trump is going to lose in November. Are you confident that that if the Republicans gain the Senate, and it's not exactly a favorable map in 2024, that they are not going to do Donald Trump's bidding or the bidding of hardcore uh, anti-choice conservatives? Should they regain control of the upper chamber? Oh, I think that if if the Republicans had the House, the Senate and the White House, and please no, but if that happened, I don't think there's any doubt they're going for a nationwide abortion ban. Uh, they've made that clear. Mitch McConnell stood up and said as much. And many of them say that part, the quiet part out loud, and they understand it is unpopular. So they don't want to be too overt about it. But they're looking for a nationwide abortion ban. And keep in mind the other half. So long as we don't make Roe versus Wade the law of the land, these courts can continue to undermine access to abortion everywhere in the country. This decision that came out of a court down in Texas that may take mifepristone off the market. Keep in mind, a place like Massachusetts, about 50% of all abortions in Massachusetts are medication abortions. They use mifepristone. And what they're trying to do is to say that wouldn't be available, not just in the 20 states that have banned abortion, it wouldn't be available anywhere in the United States. So the attacks on abortion rights that the Republicans are putting forward is both legislative, it's both at the state and federal level, and it's at the courts. In other words, wherever you are in America, if you care about abortion rights, if you care about protecting the right of people to have access to abortion, understand this, Donald Trump and the Republicans are coming for you. 
And your chance to beat that back comes in November 2024 when you vote down not just Trump, but every other Republican on the ballot. Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, thank you for your time tonight. You bet. We have a lot more this evening, including the sale of a prestigious newspaper to a right-wing media mogul and the implications of that on American democracy. And after that, Donald Trump's rage was on display for a New York jury today. We will recap the, what you might call, strategy there, coming up next. Hey, everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Earlier today, inside a New York courtroom, former magazine writer E. Jean Carroll took the witness stand for the first time in her second defamation lawsuit against Donald Trump. I'm here because Donald Trump assaulted me, Ms. Carroll said. And when I wrote about it, he said it never happened. He lied and he shattered my reputation. In this very courtroom in May, a jury found that I had indeed been sexually assaulted by Donald Trump. Then this from Roberta Kaplan. Ms. Carroll's lawyer. Ms. Carroll, has he continued to lie about you? Carroll, yes, he has continued to lie. He lied last month. He lied on Sunday. He lied yesterday. And I am here to get my reputation back and to stop him from telling lies about me. Donald Trump was also in the courtroom today, audibly making comments that jurors could hear, saying it was all a con job. The commentary got to a point where the judge threatened to throw Trump out of the courtroom altogether. Judge Kaplan, Mr. Trump, I hope I don't have to consider excluding you from the trial or at least from the presence. I understand you're probably very eager for me to do that. Mr. Trump, I would love it. Kaplan, I know you would. You just can't control yourself in these circumstances. Trump's strategy here is debatable and what is at stake is considerable. Joining me now is Chuck Rosenberg, MSNBC contributor and former U.S. attorney and senior FBI official. Chuck, thanks for being here. Um, we know that Ms. Carroll is asking for $10 million in damages plus untold punitive damages. It's unclear wh- what the jury is going to decide. But I-, I wonder how you think the outbursts here factor into the the jury's process and indeed the judge's threshold for kicking Trump out of his courtroom. Yeah, great questions, Alex. So at least the outbursts so far have not been in the presence of the jury. The jury has been out of the courtroom when those exchanges took place, although they may have heard some of the things he said and that uh, Ms. Carroll's attorneys complained about. 
Uh, but the outbursts were in front of the judge. And so how does it affect the judge? You know, courtrooms, federal courtrooms in particular, are serious places. You know, they're governed by rules and procedures. And judges are used to having their law, their orders abided. And so this may help Mr. Trump politically. It may help him in some world outside of the courtroom. But it's inconceivable, Alex, that it helps him inside the courtroom. Well, can I ask, though, because there seems to be a tacit understanding on the part of the judge that Trump would love to be kicked out of the courtroom, certainly for political optics. Right. The system is rigged against mm-hmm. me. They're kicking me out of the courtroom. But I wonder if you think there's any I hesitate to use the word strategy, but I'll use it strategy on the part of Trump to, to sort of be kicked out so that he can use that in appeal. Would that be in, in yeah. any way meaningful? You know, there's a big difference between a strategy and a successful strategy. Yeah, and so maybe, Alex, it's his strategy and maybe his goal is to try and uh, foul the record so that on appeal he has something to argue. But two things you ought to know. One is that judges control their courtrooms carefully because it is governed by rule and procedure and judges care a lot about that. And rightfully so. The second thing is that courts of appeal on review give trial court judges enormous discretion to do exactly that, to control their courtrooms. Uh, Appellate courts understand that they're only seeing a black and white record, words on paper, but the trial judge is sitting there and watching and hearing and seeing everything. And so trial judges have enormous discretion, and appellate courts have said that over and over, to control their courtroom. So if this is Mr. Trump's strategy to foul the record, um, it's a bad one. It's not going to work, Alex. Uh, Yeah, and I wonder how you think that behavior is going to potentially influence Judge Arthur Angoron, who's presiding over uh, Trump's case with the New York AG, Letitia James. That's a bench trial, so the judge is the only person to decide Mm -hmm. And Trump has antagonized Judge Ngoron in a, in a fairly remarkable fashion. He has. Uh, and look, a judge has an absolute obligation to both parties to be fair and thoughtful. Um, and that can be hard when you have a litigant in front of you, a defendant in Mr. Trump's case, uh, that just sort of tries at every opportunity to get under your skin. Uh, I don't know Judge Ngoron. I imagine he's like all the judges in front of whom I practiced Alex, and he's going to try very hard to, you know, keep it down the middle. That's his job. That's what he has to do. So what Mr. Trump is doing by acting out, again, may be a valuable political strategy. It may play to some of his fans. It's not going to help him in court. It's not going to help him with the judges. um, And it's not going to help him if he continues to do this in front of a jury. It's not going to work. Could be a very expensive January. Chuck Rosenberg, thank you again for your wisdom, Chuck. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Still ahead tonight, what would you do with $100 million? One conservative media executive who famously disdains print media just used that sum of cash to buy a newspaper, a really important newspaper. And that could mean some big changes. That's next. The sharing of biased and false, false news has, has become, become all too common, common on, on social, social media. media. More alarming, some media Back in 2018, 
A media conglomerate called Sinclair Broadcast Group gave all of their anchors the same script and ordered them all to work it into their broadcasts. The script largely followed a sort of sanitized version of Trump's rhetoric about the quote-unquote fake news media. And the script was what is known at Sinclair as a must-run, meaning stations have to air it, no ifs, ands, or buts. Which meant that a lot of people heard this script. Sinclair now owns about 200 local TV stations across the country, making Sinclair one of the nation's largest broadcasters with millions of viewers. And because these stations are local, people trust them. I mean, these are the folks people turn to for the weather and traffic updates and also conservative talking points. In addition to the must-run segments Sinclair had their anchors read, they also aired must-run pre-taped packages featuring the political analysis of former Trump staffer Boris Epstein, along with ahistorical conservative segments like this one. How can Americans, especially blacks and Latinos in America, support Hillary Clinton? It's a surprising message coming from a black pastor. But evangelical Bishop Aubrey Shines is spreading a message of why he believes Hillary Clinton's Democratic Party isn't good for black Americans. Party that gave this country slavery. Now this week, Sinclair's executive chairman, David Smith, bought one of the most important newspapers in the country, the Baltimore Sun. If you're not familiar with their work, the Baltimore Sun won a Pulitzer Prize in 2020, specifically on the strength of their local reporting. But in a tense meeting with the staff of the Baltimore Sun this week, its new owner, David Smith, reportedly insulted the quality of the paper's journalism. Smith reportedly has his own vision for this paper, and surprising no one, he thinks it should mimic one of his Sinclair television stations, Baltimore's Fox 45. That station is known for segments like City in Crisis, highlighting crime and dysfunction. As former Baltimore Sun media critic David Zerowick describes it, Fox 45 coverage fits into a larger pattern of this is what happens when you let Democrats run your city. It goes to hell. To quote from a Sinclair must-run script, unfortunately, some members of the media are using their platforms to push their own personal bias and agenda to control exactly what people think. And that is extremely dangerous to our democracy. Brian Stelter joins me to discuss the erosion of the fourth estate and the rise of right-wing disinformation. Next. This morning, the Baltimore Sun Guild, the union that represents the paper staff, released a statement. It read in part, during yesterday's meeting, new owner David Smith shared his vision for the paper, which he admitted he has rarely read. The editorial direction that he described, focused on clicks rather than journalistic value, concerned many of our members. That nearly three-hour meeting between the Sun staff and its new owner, David Smith, the executive chairman of Sinclair Broadcast Group, was described as tense. Mr. Smith, who bought the paper last week, at one point told reporters to go make me some money. When asked about job security, Smith said, not so reassuringly, that everyone has a job today. Now, David Smith is known not only for his right-wing broadcasting network, Sinclair, but also for his support of conservative causes and groups, including Project Veritas, Turning Points USA, and Moms for Liberty. As the new owner of a storied newspaper, Smith has claimed that print media has no credibility and is so left-wing as to be meaningless dribble. 
Joining me now is Brian Stelter, special correspondent for Vanity Fair, author of Network of Lies, the epic saga of Fox News, Donald Trump and the battle for American democracy and a native Marylander who's been writing about Sinclair for decades. Brian, thank you for being here. Um, You know better than most that when conservatives take over media organizations, they tend to make changes. What are your expectations for a paper that's essential as the Baltimore Sun? Yes, I grew up reading The Sun. Oftentimes when I was in Annapolis or Baltimore covering a story, the only other reporter there was from the Baltimore Sun. And although the paper has been shrinking for years, like most print newspapers across the country, it is still the default, the the, the, go, the go-to media outlet for a major American city. So what's going to happen to it now? Well, Alex, I fear this is likely the end of The Sun as a nonpartisan, widely trusted outlet. And there's going to have to be alternatives that pop up in its place. Because when these sorts of right-wing backers of media talk, they talk in code. When they say fair, what they really mean is we think the press is too liberal. When they say balanced, what they mean is we want the media to advance our political agenda, but cloak it in an all-sides claim to balance. You know what I mean? It's that kind of code language that we're already hearing the new owner of The Sun start to use. I wonder what you sort of the the psychological profile of someone who funds something like Project Veritas, which carries out alleged like sting operations of media groups, who says right. that, you know, print journalism, print journalism has no credibility and then goes and spends a hundred million dollars to buy the sun and a few other smaller papers. I mean, is that just kind of the execution of a conservative agenda to bring the fourth estate to heal? Or is it is it sort of the weird egomaniacal fixation that like conservatives like Donald Trump have with the fourth estate? Right. It's Trump attacking the media. They've been then caring a lot about what Time magazine exactly. and NBC say about him. My understanding from sources at The Sun and around Maryland politics is that David Smith has been really interested in trying to buy The Sun for quite some time. He sits at home in his mansion in suburban Baltimore. He watches what's going on in the city, and he thinks he can somehow make a difference. And let's be clear, make a difference means advance a right-wing agenda by buying up the only big newspaper in town. This is part of a pattern, Alex, as you said, of old-school newspaper and newspaper news outlets becoming zombies. You know, they get they get taken over by by these right wing buyers. They become shells of their former selves and they become political machines. This is going to keep happening as print fades away and attention and ad dollars move digital. But Alex, there is something we can all do about it. We can all go and support the alternatives. Yeah. And I want to get to that. But I, I do think it's important to note how the fix the articulated fixation on crime and police is a really important part of the ecosystem that that in turn fuels the broader right wing agenda. Can you talk a little bit more about that, given your experience with Fox News, where they love talking about crime and backing the blue? hundred percent. I feel like I've, I've been studying this for years because uh, you, you see attention on a city like Baltimore only when there is unrest, as we saw nearly a decade ago with Freddie Gray, only when there is a surge in crime. You know what happened in Baltimore in 2023? Dramatic reduction in the murder rate. You don't hear about that on Fox or across right wing talk radio. It, you only hear these headlines when they are terrifying and when they are used to advance a certain agenda. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, I think that's a force to be reckoned with in this Republican uh, primary, but also in the 2024 election. This, it's, it's kind of like a spigot that's always turned on and pumping at full blast every day, no matter what's actually happening in the trend lines or in the data. 
Yeah, and you wonder how immigration gets to be the number one topic and uh, the number right. one voting issue in a Republican primary. This is a huge part of how that happens. So what's the newspaper? But what we do we do? We yeah, support what we, alternatives. Yeah, the what's the alternative? Banner. It's, a, it's an amazing startup in Baltimore that's actually breaking news about the sun being taken over. And that's what viewers can do. They can support local grassroots news, nonprofits, startups. They can have, go out and help create their own. That's going to be the solution to this problem that's plaguing the media, Alex. Buy a local newspaper that is not a conservative mouthpiece. Support your local journalism. Brian Stelter, author of Network of Lies. It is always good to talk to you, someone so deeply, deeply entrenched in this very essential topic. Thanks, Brian. Thanks. That is our show for this evening. 